Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm, Monday Morning Coffee Edition. It's later, and I'm ha- but I'm still having coffee. <laughs> I am here with Scott Johnson and Bill Fan of, uh, wait, I have it, uh, Johnson Fan. Is that it? No, no Johnson Fane. Fane, Johnson Fane. <laughs> no, I start that one over. <laughs> it rhymes with fame. Uh, there we go. Yeah, that's right. No, it's fine. I'll speak to that. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm, Monday morning edition. I'm here with Scott, Scott Johnson and William Fane of Johnson Fane, the architecture firm. A little bit of background, Scott attended Stanford, uh, UC Berkeley, and Harvard. Uh, He was a past director of University of South uh, California's MARC program, the author of five books, ranging from tall building design to visual arts and architecture. Bill Fane uh, went to Berkeley and Harvard. You guys probably met there. We We did. Yeah, Yeah, classmates. Just like my business partner, Lance. We are classmates too. And also studied at the University of Manchester. He has two NEA fellowships, a Rome Prize Fellowship, and has taught at Harvard and SciArc. Welcome to the firm. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is great to have you. Um, I have a bunch of questions, and let's not forget to talk about tall buildings. Uh, But first, I want to go back to 1988. And your architecture firm was someone else's architecture firm. And I'm actually kind of interested is how did that transition happen? Um, Did you buy out? Uh, Did you have to get a bank loan? Did they hand the firm over? What was, what was that transition period like? Bill, you want to take that one or? Well, so Alex, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) There was a, a, uh, uh, Brad Perkins wrote an article, and uh, it was, must be 20 years ago, but he uh, had seven models of how firms were created, and he he called us the Phoenix model. <laughs> so we, ri- we rose from the ashes, and uh, the firm was uh, a fairly recognized firm. Uh, it was William L. Pereira Associates, which is uh, Bill Pereira was a, a fairly interesting and eccentric guy, did a lot of planning work, very large scale planning work, and he did a lot of tall buildings. So uh, I'm not sure that's the reason why Scott and I came to the to the firm, uh, but uh, we came at different times. I came in 1980 and he came in 1983. Uh, by uh, 83, uh, there were uh, seven uh, partners that owned the firm and Bill had sold his, his, uh, his portion. And, um, so I might say that before uh, 1980, uh, Bill had gone through a separation from his wife. So he had he created an ESOP to transition the, the firm. So the firm was really owned by an ESOP plus uh, Bill personally, and then he sold to the uh, seven partners, his portion. Uh, but uh, so uh, you could see that when we entered, I came in 80 and this guy came in 83, uh, we, we kind of communicated before uh, before he came, uh, Scott came, and uh, we decided to make a, make a go of it. And it was quite difficult because of 
all the uh, legal issues and ownership issues and that sort of thing. And we navigated over a period of from about 1985 to uh, about 1990, uh, a series of transitions that took us, uh, it, it, first of all, the, uh, there were some very, di very difficult market conditions and, uh, and most architectural firms go through these things where it puts a lot of stress in the firm and you barely get through them. And then the market comes back and, um, you know, Gloria, here we go again, you know, right. <laughs> so it's ups and downs. And so it so happened that uh, during this period, uh, there was a weakness in the market and a number of the, of the principals uh, actually resigned and went on to other things. And, and so then we worked with them and transitioned them over a period. And then in 80, 88, 89, uh, we, uh, we, we transitioned the ESOP out. So I'm sort of giving you a, a sort of a very simple uh, yeah. rendition. And that by 1988 or 89, uh, we incorporated our own firm. We called it Johnson Fain Pereira at that time. And there's a, a number of publications that reflect that title. And, uh, then, uh, and then I think it was two years later, Scott, was it, when did we transition to Johnson Fain? Um, well, it was maybe a year later. A year later. It was very yeah. fluid. Yeah. So it was, uh, I would say it was very, uh, very uh, peaceful and quite frankly, a transition, but it did take time. Did you guys approach the ownership group or did the ownership group approach you? Because you, um, were you just a couple years out of college at this point or? No, well, we were, no Scott, go ahead. I, I, yeah, let me, let me whack away at this a little bit. Uh, you know, Bill is telling you the story as it is and it's been written. Uh, it was very complicated. I'm going to be a little more dramatic here. Uh, um, one of the things that was happening in the marketplace, and I guess I can't avoid talking about tall buildings. Bill was a senior planner in the office and I came as a senior design architect and was told that I would be director of design for architecture, which I was, and uh, everyone was compliant with that. Uh, but w the, the firm was dwindling down work because the other partners weren't bringing it in, frankly, and we were. Bill was doing a very large master plan, an important plan, Hawaii, and working for uh, Metro and other things, and I was doing our first building together in tall building. Uh, it was a building called Fox Plaza. It became the diehard building, if you know action movies and all of that in Hollywood. And it brought us, the work that we were doing uh, brought us enough, uh, what would you say, lead in the pencil uh, to be able to go to the principals and say, okay, things are changing now and we need to change. And we frankly challenged them uh, that, and we invited them to resign and go to other things. And we had to work all that out. That's about as much as I'd like to say about that. But yeah. now looking back, looking back at it, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was done rather quickly and smoothly and we were grateful we could do it. Uh, but it was, it was a series of forces that came together right at that time. Is that fair to say, Bill? Have I, yeah, I, I would say, I would say that, um, if, you know, it's one of the number of models for creating a firm. And I think we were, Quite young in those days, and and resilient, and we uh, we felt that uh, it was worth the, worth the risk. And, and, and I would say, go ahead, Alex. The the reason I bring it up is because um, some of the bigger name firms have been brought up, and not recently, but in the news. You know, how do you transition? And I think a lot of firms have this issue because some firms just die out. 
the principles just, you know, hold on, die out, and it kind of just fizzles. And it doesn't get talked about much that there can be a transition that you can do it. Um, so I just wanted to bring some of that to light since you guys went through that experience. Well, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to do. You're right to say that it doesn't happen successfully often. We were aware of that, but we were young and we had the work and we had the clients and we said, let's, let's go for it. Um, but you're right. It's very problematic. I was coming from a firm in New York that actually blew up. So I had some, some personal experience with when uh, a firm can't intelligently think about a transition. Uh, sometimes good things don't happen, so to speak. Yeah. Um, another concept that your firm does great at is you have uh, international work. Was that already established um, when you came or did you have to build relationships? Um, and how have you worked that or grown that area? Well, it's, I'm just going to start that, let Bill finish it. But um, the firm Pereira, William Pereira, had done international work over a number of years and decades. But at the time we came in, it really, it was very vestigial. There wasn't really much of it. And the work that we ended up doing internationally from really the late 80s with some important work in Japan and the Mariana Islands and ultimately in Southeast Asia and then leading to China and Taiwan, uh, all of that really happened, in, in actual fact, happened after we took the firm over. 90, you may recall, or you may have heard about, given your age, in 1990, 91, the yen crashed and Japan withdrew from markets. And there was a difficult five years then between 90 and 95. Uh, but in that time, we did get a very large project uh, in the Pacific Rim, uh, East Asian market, and, and we were able from that to build our own connection. So our roots in the international work that we've executed in the last 20 to 30 years have really been a result of the firm as, uh, as we remade it. Gotcha. Yeah, I, would, have... I would add to that, uh, Alex, that the, uh, uh, the work really uh, began um, by a relationship we had in the 1980s, late 80s, uh, with a construction group in, in Tokyo. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that, was the, uh, that led us to a, a very large project. It lasted well into the recession of uh, 1990. And uh, our firm was, uh, uh, it was around about 130 or 35 people at that time. It fluctuates. It goes from one end of the spectrum to the other, but it 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 was so much so that we could we could uh, we set up an office overseas. A very it was project driven, and, and then there were other projects we were able to muster from from that location. But uh, and then the China uh, syndrome came along, <laughs> you know, in the uh, early night two thousands and. And uh, we were just talking about the other day, Scott, and I think I've been to China 65 times, you know, which is in 25 years or 23 years, something like that. But um, it's, uh, and that's been really comprehensive because I do most urban design planning work. And, and uh, so they were trying to figure out, this, the country was trying to figure out how to, to move from an agricultural uh, country to a uh, industrial country. Uh, with large cities and that sort of thing. And our first project in China uh, was the, uh, we won the design competition for the uh, master plan for the CBD in Beijing. And uh, Beijing, of course, didn't have a CBD because Mao entered into the scene in the 40s and, and uh, hadn't really developed a, 
a contemporary CBD, Central Business District. Mm-hmm. And um, the plan was for 145 million square feet. So, and they build it in 11 years. So it just indicates the yeah. <laughs> supply side economics. Anyway, but that's all. Yeah. Before we jump into fun architecture projects, which we all like <clears throat> to talk about, I kind of want to stick in the nuts and bolts for a while. You have a firm of 50 people, probably fluctuates slightly. How is your firm organized? And throughout your years, um, have there been any challenges that you maybe didn't foresee or something that you worked through that was a, a clear lesson that you think might be helpful in managing oh, people, managing a firm? We, we, we probably have one of every kind of problem, Alex, that you can have over 20 years, virtue of the fact that, you know, we do architecture, we do urban design and planning, we do interiors. So we have kind of three areas, uh, and so there's that. Then we're kind of horizontally organized, not so vertically organized. So we're in a studio environment. So the management of people and their roles and their equality or their, their relationships, you have a set of those issues, right? And then, of course, our firm has grown in the period of technology, right? We were one of the first firms to apply, um, to apply AutoCAD, to apply CAD, the early CAD to design, not just to construction documents. You might not know this, but, you know, initially all of CAD was used to coordinate construction documents. And then we said, well, no, we should be using it for design. And in your, in your period, in your vintage, it's, of course, been enthusiastically embraced and, in fact, you know, informs design in a million ways. So we had that. And so there was the absorption of technology. There's a cost of absorbing technology. Technology is not free, right? And, you know, you have to be of a certain scale. I feel bad for the smaller offices who have to spend a disproportionate amount of, uh, you know, their, their revenues on, on, uh, on both technology and then constantly updating it, right, and licensing it and all that. Um, so there, there are all of those issues. And then let's just say the recent obvious one, now you have COVID, right, and the workplace has been almost totally remote, and that's created a whole other set of issues which were challenging and sometimes irritating, and, but sometimes in the case of architecture, architects are rather smart on technology and facile. And, and we as other architectural firms have probably done better than many other kinds of industries uh, surviving that. And now we're slowly coming back. You know, what, what will that be like? Well, well, you know, somebody in our office mentioned we'll have a docking station as the office and people will come and go and for things that they need to be together, they'll land together. And for things that they don't, they'll be wherever they are. Um, doesn't seem that hard to believe in, in some levels. So, so I, I guess I'm saying one of each. Yeah. Um, I, I go like ahead. That, Alex. Sorry about that. I just, the, um, uh, some of the, the difficulties we had, they were slightly different in the beginning uh, because we inherited a certain amount of debt and, uh, obligations that, um, that if you were starting out on your own, you wouldn't necessarily have. And so um, navigating through a certain, when the market goes down, you still have these obligations, particularly, um, um, you know, the, for example, rent is one of the, the toughest and they had obligated, uh, the previous uh, partners had obligated us for five floors in a, a the high-rise building, you know, with escalating rents, and that was that was a rather difficult uh, payroll. So, uh, yeah, uh, what city is this in? Los Angeles. Okay, yeah, yeah, Los Angeles. So, so, um, but so we had to overcome those obstacles of 
of previous um, uh, commitment, and we were able to do that, which was difficult because there were ups and downs. Um, the thing that we didn't, uh, we hadn't really had the experience, uh, although we've worked on a number of, of circumstances where uh, running your own show was um, was important, and, and uh, but we'd never been the owners. And so uh, consequently, uh, the markets came. And uh, when there's uh, really a crash in the 80s, there was a couple of them. In the 90s, there was at least one. In the early 2000s, we had our, uh, you know, 2007 and 8 was just a big one. And then uh, more recently, the COVID thing. But that we, uh, the thing that was really important is that a couple of things. One is that we communicated regularly. And we had a very simple structure. We were equal, and that's it. And uh, so when we went through these really tough times, uh, we didn't have distractions. And so we focused on what was the, the, the appropriate solution given what we had to do. And oftentimes there were difficult reductions and things like that. And we had the salaries and things that we had to compromise ourselves on and that sort of thing. And it was difficult at times. And But uh, we believe in the same thing. Um, uh, the other thing we believed in is that we don't believe in debt. So uh, even though I think at times firms have to have to borrow in order to, to manage certain things, um, we didn't do that. Uh, and uh, it's a it was difficult because it means you can't take as much distribution at times, or you can't give bonuses as much, or whatever. But um, but we did manage our costs that way, and that was really important. So we had the resilience. And I think that really helped. Was 2008 one of the harder ones for you? Or was that more in line with the early 90s, um, late 80s one? 2008 I think was... they're different. Uh, Scott, what do you think? I think they're, they're different, but they're equally as uh, difficult. Um, different being that uh, in 2008, uh, or actually it was you know, two, in the early 90s, we had uh, we had that's when we had 125 people, mm. and and uh, we finished the project, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I looked at Scott. I said, "Guess we a good thing we finished the project, but guess what? There's no work because we'd already been in two years in a recession here in Los Angeles, and uh, we were the only firm that was hiring during that period, and so it was really difficult. Um, and in 2008, yeah. it was uh, uh, it's just a uh, I think we were in the we were in the wave with everybody else in that uh, period, and it wasn't quite as the same. And uh, we could, you know, manage our costs gradually, but it was pretty deep, especially when you're dependent on housing, and that was a that was a big a big factor. Yeah, there are many ways a recession can happen, Alex. In two th- in in 1990, when the the end crashed, uh, we actually had the largest resort project in the Pacific region ever. And so that's why we were we were doing quite well when everybody in Los Angeles and the U.S. wasn't doing well. It was rather ironic when 2000 came around and we were building back. There was a tech crash, as you remember, 1999, yes. 2000. But we weren't that big in tech. We were, had a lot of biotech, but we had a very diverse portfolio. So we really didn't feel that when 2008, nine, the mortgage crisis came. 
we came back from our summer of 2008 and it was September and the beginning of September, we, we had to let 25 plus people go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the social media world was just agog that Johnson Faden was cratering and then Lehman crashed three weeks later. And then everyone started to shed people. And by Christmas, everybody had shed lots of people at least twice. All the people that were saying Johnson Faden was going to crash, they, they were crashing. So, you know, we absorbed that and they did in one form or another. Um, uh, but that, that was a big one. That was a big one. And now COVID, COVID was troublesome as well, but for a whole set of other different reasons. I'd say, Alex, that the one thing is that the, um, the thing, the tradition of the old firm by transition in retrospect and looking back and saying what, what really helped us. And to some extent, uh, the first of all, Scott and I, our own backgrounds are very different even though we're in the same class at Harvard and worked in the same studio and same projects. But, um, but I think that uh, the diversity of the, of the, of the prayer firm was important uh, in sort of uh, being able to carry that forward. And, and we took advantage of that. And during those periods, uh, for example, some of our overseas work really carried us through mm-hmm. and China was very, very big then. And, um, you recall that, Scott? And yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, think the, uh, I think that some of the other projects, you know, it's interesting that uh, urban design planning and, and uh, architecture, they're kind of counter-cyclical. And uh, oftentimes when architecture goes down, all of a sudden I find that there's a lot more planning projects coming of scale, you know, so. Yeah, that's uh, worked well for us. Yeah, that seems like something you probably couldn't plan in the future, but it, it's working out. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It, are you actively trying to stay diverse in case it, it's so hard to predict recessions? I've predicted uh, 10 out of the last three of them. Um, if you get that joke. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're yeah. doing really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got that. <laughs> okay, when's the next one? <laughs> well, I'll probably say it's going to come three times before it actually comes. Um, but is that how much of because i've seen both sides and both sides of the um operating a firm one successful ndsu alumni um does very good at cultivating great relationships and and doing fun work um but there isn't a a big strategic plan behind it um other people are more strategic um where would you guys lay your yourself and and how you're thinking about the the future and and how your firm is going to navigate that future well, I think we, we try to play all planes, plain, so to speak. You know, any architectural firm, if it's a single firm, it's not a network of multiple firms, let's just say that for a mm-hmm. moment, you know, is going to be close and have cultural ties and be active in their community. So there's a, there's a bedrock there. And if the community is big enough to keep them busy and keep them involved, um, there's a whole set of work that can come out of that. But then what is the work you're doing? In our case, as we're saying, it's diverse. There's large-scale master planning and urban design projects. Uh, there's architecture in several different project types. And there's interior design from programming to space planning to tenant work. So you're, you're playing on all those chords. In our case, there's another slice you can put through that, that we have worked in certain places. It would be easy if Chinese work continues forward. It would be easy. It's very easy for us to put a proposal together, uh, Bill, sometimes when he's marketing there, there, we'll show a picture of mainland China and all little dots where we've done work. And it's just, you know, it's a blizzard 
of dozens of projects that tends to attract projects. You know, we've been for 10 years in Taiwan doing a series of rather high-end projects that builds its own lifeline. So I think we operate across several slices there, really. Okay. Yeah. I think the diversity helps us. That's the, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I th I'm not sure that we've consciously organized around a particular uh, 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 specialty. And uh, that can be a negative and a positive in a firm like this. And, uh, yeah. but I think it's in, in downtimes, it's important to have that kind of diversity. And uh, yeah. yeah, it seems to work. Yeah, I mean, great. we know a lot of firms here locally are doing nothing but housing, you know, and when that pops, everything goes. And um, we don't, we seem to be a little more, even though we've had some uh, uh, in terms of employment, it's gone up and down, but, but I think the, um, the diversity of work has helped us. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, going back to when you meet, do you remember when you met and then what was that like? And then when you decided that maybe you wanted to work together in the future, because I think there oh, might no, be. I, 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 you know, I never liked Scott, you know, he was Good. just. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could not stand yeah. Bill. He, he was never in class. We had a, he said we had a class together, but he had a girlfriend <laughs> in New York. So he was never in class. So I, oh, I yeah, heard well, about I, him, but I, it, I never got him at Harvard. Yeah, you know, anyway, but uh, those are the, those are the good old days. Right. But, yeah. you know, I think that uh, uh, we, uh, we were in a studio together. It was uh, Joe Passano's studio. It was a very, he was an op a very, uh, I'd say, um, well, let's say he had a broad view of what architecture was. And he <laughs> saw it as being the city as well as the, uh, as well as the building. So uh, well, I'm not sure a, he thought about the buildings, yeah. say, but he did think about <laughs> yeah. the city. He had a, he had a, um, uh, this studio was sort of the last one and we had our thesis in it and all that. And so there's about 20 students or no, not that many, 16 students, something like that. And uh, so he said, he, he said, we all sort of worked together in the beginning just to, to generate the data, you know, for the, for the analysis and that sort of thing. And I, I was already working at the BRA at, at the time. And, and um, so Boston was, Redevelopment uh, Authority. Our, yeah. Boston Thank Redevelopment you. Authority. So I had a pretty good idea. Thanks. I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do. And Scott, and uh, I guess Scott had, you, you had a project in mind as well. And yeah, I had a station. There, there, I had a multimodal station. Yeah, yeah and so there, was, there were others that weren't so, um, uh, uh, you know, they didn't really like the, this openness of the studio. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we managed quite well separately, of course. We weren't working uh, intimately together, but we did communicate. But uh, it's interesting because that class was as broad as our studio is now. You know, it's really weird how it's, it came back. You know, it's like deja vu. But the whole idea is that is uh, you know I'm working on a project in in the Middle East, which is you know quite large in area. It's it's uh, you know it's hundreds of square miles. You know, in size, the region. I mean, it's a big region. And, uh, and Scott's working on high rises. You know, in Century, a brand new one right now. It's it's uh, under construction. The, the uh, foundations are under construction right now. So. It's it's amazing how this sort of has come about, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did the plan, for example, of Mission Bay. You know, it's 15 million square feet and it has uh, UCSF uh, biotech uh, campus in it, and that was one of the vehicles that allowed us to do a lot of biotech work with. And it was an introduction to Amgen, uh, which was 
has been uh, just a wonderful, it's the largest biotech company in the world in Thousand Oaks here in Southern California. And uh, that's, uh, that's been quite a, 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 you know, it's been a quite a good relationship with a good client. Gotcha. And then you both were probably after college kept in communication and then decided to go take over together. Well, Scott, well, we, Scott, Scott went to uh, New York, a very interesting experience. So you might want to convey that a little bit. I well, went to Washington DC at that time, but that's right. Yeah, we were, we were each on our own journeys. Bill was in Washington and doing work around the country out of Washington. Um, and he, you know, had an urban design planning orientation and a policy orientation and a business orientation to some degree. And, you know, I just wanted to make buildings. So I pretty quickly ended up in New York City. I worked for a guy by the name of Philip Johnson, for those who follow the, follow history. And um, I worked it for him for a number of years there. And then came back uh, when Pereira had done a re outreach and asked if I wanted to come back to Los Angeles and be design director. Um, he was older, uh, Bill Pereira was, and I came back and discovered, lo and behold, Bill Fain, my old classmate was there and he'd been there for a couple of years and he was a senior planner. As near as I could tell, he was the only one who knew anything in planning, but maybe that, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but he was my close friend and uh, I felt that we were probably had similar things in common and ambition and I think, well, and I, Bill can speak for himself, of course. While I had all the respect in the world for Bill Pereira and his career and whatever, that wasn't really the magnet. My magnet in leaving uh, Philip Johnson and John Bergia in New York City was that I wanted to create some kind of platform where my voice could make buildings and I could have authority in that, more authority, obviously, than being a, you know, an acolyte of Philip and John. So, uh, and, Bill, and Bill Fain was in the office and we got together and said, well, here's what it is. And Bill was very helpful in having me see behind the curtain a little bit, some of the um, kind of thorny issues with the firm that I might not have seen by just flying in for two days and flying out and flying in. So, you know, we connected well. And then I did choose to come in 83, the late summer of 83. And Bill was working on some big projects and I started Fox Plaza. And um, we rather quickly materialized a a kind of an understanding that we would have to move this firm as it's currently constituted really didn't have legs and it was our legs that it needed or we would walk we'd either get it to a place where we would take it or we would go somewhere else and do it and it, you know as we talked about earlier it evolved in a way that it uh, evolved into into our firm so. gotcha well <clears throat> transitioning a little bit i grew up watching robert schuler and uh, he <laughs> preached in a building that used to be called the Crystal Cathedral. And images do not do that building justice. Uh, video barely does that justice. Uh, being there does that place justice. Uh, Scott, I believe you worked on this building and now it is called the Christ Cathedral. Can you guys see my screen? Excuse yeah. me. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I like that picture better, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is an absolutely gorgeous, one of a kind building. What was your involvement? Um, and could you talk about this project? Because this is, besides maybe Hagia Sophia, um, this building and also uh, what's the Frank Lloyd Wright's Guggenheim. Um, it's it's maybe one of my top three buildings of all time. 
Well, you, you, you're drawn to iconic buildings, and I can see, because yeah. they're all icons of their own. Uh, yeah, um, actually, um, I'll be brief about this part of it. I was actually in the office of Philip Johnson and John Berge, Johnson Berge in the late 70s and through the early 80s to 83 when I moved to LA, and this was a project that was on the boards and under construction when I was there. And I actually spent, although I didn't spend a lot of time on this, I spent a few months detailing some of the skin and the, uh, the curtain wall system and all of that. So I, I was aware of it. I had touched it a little bit. I take no responsibility for it. It was Philip and John's building, but it, it, it was fun to think back. And then years later, Bill and I have our practice. We grew out the practice and somebody representing the Catholic diocese came to us and said, well, we're talking to architects. We're gonna talk to three or four. Would you like to be considered? And we said, I looked at Bill and Bill looked at me. I said, sure, it's an you know, important building. Let's." Let's, let's put our hat in the ring on that. And we did. And then we were, we, we got it. And, um, you know, I, we don't, I, I like to think it's because we're handsome guys and, and we're sure? a smart firm and we were the best choice. And maybe that was it, but, you know, but I, I sort of know, I know the legacy. I spent enough time with Philip. I know where the building comes from. I know the stories. I know when Reverend Schuller walked in our office to commission what happened. And it, that's a funny story that we don't have time to tell. But I also knew where Philip was in his career, so where this building is placed in it. It's actually a very large transitional version of his sculpture gallery in his new Canaan property next to his glass house, where he has a sloped chevron roof. There he has stone walls, and the mm -hmm. roof is, is glass. And he actually presented a very similar building to Reverend Schuller. And Reverend Schuller said, oh, well, that's nice, but no, no, it has to be all glass. The whole building has to be glass. At which point John Berge said, well, okay, how do you support a whole building of glass? And they developed the idea of a space frame, right? Where you could see through the space frame, you see glass. And that came, if you followed Schiller, of course, it comes from uh, Reverend Schiller's early days standing on the snack box at a drive-in theater in Orange County, a culture that Bill probably understands better than I. Bill's from Southern California, not Orange County, but and I'm from Northern California, but we learned about it. And and he wanted to be able to speak to the masses inside the congressional, the congregational area. And he wanted to be able to open the doors wide and speak to the people in the parking lot, as he did from the beginning. So the building was kind of a remake of that when we were asked to remake it into a Catholic cathedral. And what I was always impressed with, not all, all the glass is impressive, that the glass opens impressive, the shape is impressive. Um, there's even some smaller additions uh, by... I believe Richard Meyer next to it, but I could be wrong. Well, well, yeah. well there, there are more than small additions. There are two yeah. buildings by Richard Neutra and one large building by uh, Richard Meyer while he was yeah. doing the Getty. Yeah. Um, so in your guys' addition to that building, what always struck me too is, you know, everyone knows California, is how they manage the heat and all that. And was that the catalyst for the change um, that we saw in the interior? What was kind of your program there? Well, I need to do the short version in a podcast, but uh, <laughs> essentially the building was not air conditioned and, you know, it's warm in Southern California a lot, but the top clear story at the peak of the ridge of the roof opened up automatically. And the idea is that it would ventilate the hot air up and out. And that was fine, except on a day where it's hundred degrees outside and you're sitting in a two hour mass or service, you could be pretty uncomfortable. So one little part of a whole bunch of technical problems to be solved was to how to make the building more comfortable. Uh, so part of that was shading, right? Because it's just glass and you're getting blasted with sun. 
Part of it was some mechanical ventilation boosting. Part of it, there were acoustic problems. The building is long and the reverberation time is too long for the spoken word. Uh, part of it was that um, you can't illuminate a space if you don't have through glass because glass doesn't bounce light back. Glass lets light pass through. So, you know, to create ambient light, particularly at night, you need a surface to bounce the light back. There are a whole bunch of issues and we developed this idea of what we call the quatrefoil or the sails to sort of solve all of those problems and at the same time give a sort of a sense of, of the sky and the heavens and all that that involves. Awesome. Well, well, great job. Um, it's, I love that you got to work, you know, came back and you got to see it again. Uh, <laughs> it was a unique experience for us. Yeah. And for me too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another building that, that seems like it had interesting challenges and uh, feels like you took those challenges and ran with it in, in an absolutely good way is uh, the first American museum uh, up on the screen here. Uh, it, could you guys talk about the process with designing this building and what some of the thoughts were behind it? Bill, can you take that one on? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, well, this is uh, the process only took 20, 25 years. Oh, that's nothing. And so I like to say it, there's only a, one other project that took so long to conceptualize, and that was the pyramids in Egypt. But but uh, that's not really uh, historically it's rather favorable, true, but favorable, I like favorable to use Favorable comparison, Bill. Favorable <laughs> yeah. comparison. Right? Yeah, I, I thought about Shark Cathedral, but uh, I realized oh that oh it was Gothic and, and Romanesque. So, or Gothic, right. yes, and Romanesque, that's right. And uh, But um, this is a, a project where we had to transform ourselves from kind of a way of thinking sort of our very linear rational thinking to uh, looking at the world differently in a more circular way. And what I mean by circular way is that there have been a number of books written about this, uh, namely uh, by uh, a fellow named Don Fixico, which he really talks about Indians who, who uh, the tradition of Indians is that they look at life more holistically. And, and they, when they do, they they take longer, uh, maybe the long the longness of the project is, is one of the, uh, the outcomes. And, but uh, they also take in a lot of information and they think of it as uh, they try to distill it in ways that we don't. And so, um, so we went through a period um, and it's, it's also a project where, where uh, both uh, site planning and urban design and all the things having to do with context and, the, and sort of the overall world kind of came to bear on this and it overlapped and was combined with architecture. So this is one of the projects that both Scott and I really collaborated on. And, and it, um, uh, it has both spiritual as well as functional sort of considerations. But um, there were the 28 sites, I think in Oklahoma originally, we, we did the site selection work, we did the programming of it, and, uh, and we, we organized it around two circular worlds. One, one's, one world was earthen, and the other one was based on technology, which is the building. And these two overlapping circles form a, and, and might say that the, the earthen circle represented the sort of the native, uh, the natural, uh, its nature, essentially. And uh, the technological uh, is really the man-made. And the overlap 
And there's two histories associated with this, particularly in the Americas. Um, of course, the Western Europeans settled America, uh, but there was indigenous people here. And uh, there's a whole different world of thinking with those indigenous people. And it was much closer to earth. And we draw a distinction between earth and land, for example. Uh, the Western Europeans brought a concept of land ownership, which is parcelization and you know, ownership of individual pieces of land. The Indians didn't think that way. So they think of what we call, uh, what the, earth, the Europeans were calling land, they were thinking of as, as earth, it's more spiritual. So the earthen mound uh, is a, it's built on the premise that uh, the early uh, inhabitants uh, built mounds near rivers. And you can see the Oklahoma River, it, it was previously named the North Canadian River, but during this period, it changed its name. And, um, and so the, the, the project is elevated well above the, the floodplain and it has this circular mound that goes up uh, equivalent to the height of the hall of the, what we call the people, because these two overlapping circles form this very eccentric space a very beautiful space, but it's, we call it the hall of people, it's of all people. And it represents, um, it represents the reconciliations really of the two histories, interestingly. So um, the, uh, the project originated because of an idea about uh, the Trail of Tears. And there are 39 tribes uh, of Oklahoma that are represented here, but uh, during the uh, the relocation of Indian tribes from all over the United States to Oklahoma, which was ter Indian territory in, in 1830. Um, uh, over a 70-year period, they relocated the Indians to Oklahoma. Uh, the federal government did. And so there's many as 65 to 110 tribes. They, they really don't have the accurate records right now uh, to be able to determine that. But um, so... Uh, this was a, a very important project, a national project, because in essence, uh, Oklahoma, before it became a state in, in 1907, uh, was known as Indian Territory and the depository of, of these Indians uh, from various parts of the United States. Uh, you know, the, you know of the, the term, the Trail of Tears, and because of the Seminoles were relocated from Florida to Oklahoma, but all the Indian tribes that were relocated to Oklahoma, really a, a part of the Trail of Tears. So it's, uh, it commemorates that. Uh, it's an important, uh, I would say, an important project uh, for the country. And it's a counterpart to uh, the Smithsonian, which is in Washington, D.C., where all the artifacts are. So this, uh, this slide you're showing there is the continuation of this, the, uh, the circle coming uh, around uh, uh, the building circle, and then you can see uh, on the other side of the of the Hall of the People, which is this dome, glass dome, there's a walkway, which is the walk that takes you up to the promontory point. So it's where this the uh, the circle of the mound overlaps the circle of the building, and so that's the Hall of Reconciliation. And this is a construction site, of course, and it opened on September 18th, and we're very pleased with it. Uh, and the, it's not just a collaboration, sorry, Scott, I'm sort of dominated here, but the, it's not just a collaboration between the two of us, uh, but very importantly, 
uh, we uh, early on realized the story needed to be needed to be told. So uh, when we uh, built the team, we asked uh, Ralph Applebaum from New York, who did the Holocaust, uh, the you know the exhibits in the Holocaust, to join us, and then George Hargraves, a San Francisco architect who at the time was the department chair of landscape at Harvard, to join the team along with Lord Cultural Resources from Canada for the programming and OVARP on the engineering. So it was a really an interesting team. We added another sort of interesting guy, a, a guy that we'd work with uh, in Hollywood <clears throat> uh, when Steven Spielberg did a studio down in Playa Vista and he introduced uh, Rick Carter to us who was a production designer. So he jo joined uh, along everyone else. All these, all these people were a part of work sessions and we had a few work sessions in our office in uh, in Los Angeles, but very importantly, we had work sessions with the tribes uh, in Oklahoma. And the board of of the uh, the authority was uh, made up of a number of Indian, very prominent Indians. And uh, we also with went with the Applebaum people out to the various uh, tribal locations all over Oklahoma, and we filmed their life histories and stories. So their stories are told in this museum. And, um, and the iconography is very important. And the entrance, for example, of looking at this entrance, uh, the wall, uh, we like to call it as the, uh, is that there's, uh, uh, there's the stone walls are made of stones that are native uh, to Oklahoma, but uh, each of the stones represent the number of people that were relocated here uh, through the, the uh, uh, the relocation effort. Uh, the uh, the project is is oriented around natural uh, elements. Uh, the uh, the the setting sun uh, on the uh, summer solstice or the winter solstice here uh, it actually is in line with the center of the great circle of nations, which is uh, which is called something else today, but we conceptualize it as as that it's the festival circle today. And um, so, uh, uh, and uh, so the, the indicate the, the, the various elements of nature are represented at the, for, the seven forces or seven directions, uh, uh, which include the solstices and the equinox and the cardinal directions, as well as the central force. And then uh, also, the uh, various ecologies are represented. For example, the, we mentioned the woodlands earlier uh, and the river ecology and the plains, which are very much part of the nature of uh, Indian culture. Awesome. Great building. Um, Scott, could you tell that Robert Schuler story uh, of first meeting? <laughs> uh, well, I guess I can. Uh, I just wanted to add to Bill very briefly. We also were the collaboration, the broad collaboration he spoke of. Hornbeak Blatt were the local architects and they were there on site, you know, daily and weekly when we were in Los Angeles and we appreciated their working. And as Bill implied at the beginning, you know, it was such a, because it was so long and such an unusual process, you know, a roof didn't become a roof and a wall didn't become a wall and a door was not a door. It was a chance to sort of on the architectural level, kind of redefine everything by rethinking everything from the native point of view. So that was, it was a wonderful 
opportunity for unusual architecture. But switching from that at your request to Reverend Schuler, um, very briefly, uh, Reverend Schuler came into the office unannounced back in the late 70s. Uh, it was reported to me, I would have been in the drafting room, so I wouldn't have witnessed this. The reception room, there was a receptionist there. And because it was a uh, Johnson Bergier was an, a, a good office to work in. It was an interesting office, a lot of press. People were constantly coming in and wanting to work for us or work with us. And the young lady at the front was told that when they come in, if they, if they want to work there, she, said she should just ask for their resume and she would get back to them. That was what she was told to say. So one day this gentleman comes in with gray hair and a nice suit, says, I need to speak to Philip Johnson. She said, oh, what's it about, sir? And, and he said, well, I need to talk to him about a job. And she dutifully replied, well, if you give us your resume, we'd be happy to get review it and get back to you. And he kind of went out brusquely, went back to the Plaza Hotel where he was staying, and he called in and got through her to Philip's secretary, at which point Philip said, oh, yes, Reverend Schuler, bring him in, please. And he came back over, and I don't know if he had harsh words for the receptionist or not as he passed by her. Don't know that part of the story, but he did come in right away, and, and he and Philip talked, and they were both, uh, they were both obviously very animated visionary characters in their own ways and they hit it off and the rest was kind of history. Awesome. A great story. Um, I'm sure there's more we could do in about a couple minutes after wrap it up to go to another meeting, but any sort of topic or idea that you want to get out there that we haven't kind of covered? I'm sure there's many, so we'll ask maybe just for one. <laughs> um, oh. Uh, it's hard to say. I just say, just do what you believe. You know, our practice over the last three decades has been really a result of, of uh, what Bill does so well and what I try to do so well. And it's diverse because we're diverse and we're doing the projects. We have been doing the project that we like to do. Uh, and uh, now we have to look at our own transitions and how uh, now that our firm is transitioned into the next generations, which is uh, an interesting uh, challenge for us. Absolutely. Bill? Yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I agree with Scott. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, whatever you've been taught in school and that sort of thing, it, it, you, it, there's a harsh reality to building your own firm. And, and I, I do think that uh, as long as you're, you have a passion for what you're doing, I think you get through it pretty, pretty well. And I, um, so I, I wouldn't want to discourage people to young professionals from doing anything but i think you find yourself in uh situations where you you need to be opportunistic to some extent and take advantage of things but what gets you through it is the belief you 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 this is something you want to do and you believe in it and uh, you go ahead with vigor and it's great well I think anyone... it's been a lot of fun working with scott i've enjoyed it Likewise. Despite that fact, I didn't like him in the beginning. So. <laughs> hey, that's fair. I don't know if you're joking or not, but but Lance and I did not like each other in the beginning. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding, really. Yeah. All's well that ends well. Should we leave yeah. it on that note? <laughs> there you go. Um, if anyone listening or watching wants to see more of their work, or if you're just listening and couldn't see it, go to johnsonfain.com. Um, we only covered two buildings. There are many more that are quite exceptional. So go take a look. Thanks for joining us. And I appreciate your time. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex. We appreciate it.